Father, we come to you, indeed, holy, holy, holy are you. <laughs> what a day it will be when we will join those who've gone before us as we declare your character, your awesomeness before your throne. Lord, thank you. Thank you for our salvation, which Peter is highlighting here in 1 Peter 1, and we're going to explore this morning. Thank you for what you have placed in motion before you even created this globe. And thank you that this globe is not all there is, <laughs> and this life is not all there is. And you've orchestrated events that there's a day coming when your son will return. And Lord, we pray that be today. In the name of our Savior, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, if you would, turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have just joined us, we are moving through Peter's first epistle, nestled in the latter part of the New Testament. I love doing genealogy work. I think I've mentioned that before. I find it extremely fascinating. I love the stories, the connections, the horse thieves. It's just great. Uh, you know, and I was reading just recently in the news a few months ago, Lionel Rosler's years of doing genealogy work, his searching, his patience, and his hard work finally paid off. His mission was to find a family in Belgium, not because they were related, but because the Borlet family had risked everything to protect his Jewish father and his grandmother from the Nazis. Through social media and a leading European genealogist, Lionel was able to locate the descendants of the family who bravely cared for his relatives. And this past May, Lionel and his father, David, were able to meet the descendants in the very home where David and his mom were hid. David wept as he personally thanked the family, stating for the past 80 years, he had longed to return and to thank them for all that they had done. <laughs> Longing, anticipation. It's what Peter's going to highlight in these three verses that are the, the final three verses of the thanksgiving. We talked about this last week, a, a, an ancient letter, first century letter has a, a greeting, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, then a thanksgiving, and then it gets to the content. So we're headed there, but you don't want to do a uh, blitzkrieg over the uh, thanksgiving, because it's where you're going to highlight, the author is going to highlight some things that he's going to tease out later in the letter, and that's exactly what happens. Verses three through nine, we looked at, Peter looked at our salvation and he, he highlighted the hope that we have, the joy in the present as well as in the future. And now, interestingly, he goes to the past in verses 10 through 12. So let's look at this. Concerning this salvation, he writes, the prophets who predicted the grace that would come to you searched and investigated carefully. They probed into what person or time the spirit of Christ within them was indicating when he testified beforehand about the sufferings appointed for Christ and his subsequent glory or glories. 
They were shown that they were serving not themselves, but you in regard to the things now announced to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things angels long to catch a glimpse of. Let's look at this text, and if you're following along, you should have notes on the backside of your bulletin, or if you're following along online, you should have the notes there before you. And let's just look at this text about our glorious salvation, again, which was highlighted in the first part of the Thanksgiving. He now comes and looks at it from the past perspective. The first thing he notes is that a grace was predicted. Notice in verse 10, concerning this salvation, and that's the, the kingpin, it takes us back to verse 9. If you look at verse 9, just to refresh our memory, because you are obtaining the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, is, oh, and, and by the way, that salvation, and then he's going to highlight this, he says, the prophets who predicted this grace. And so we see this link, and he gives us an answer to three questions. The first is who? Notice he says, the prophets who predicted. Scholars love to quibble because it gives them another thing to write and get published. And some would argue these are New Testament prophets. And we know there was prophets in the New Testament era. But I think Peter is referring to Old Testament prophets. Some would say, well, they wouldn't have searched the scriptures. Well, yes, they would have. Psalm 119 talks about this. Daniel 12 says, Daniel the prophet said, I heard, I didn't understand. And so I said, oh Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? So we know that Old Testament prophets wanted to know that they searched these things. And New Testament prophets, they already knew about the, the time of Christ's sufferings. It already occurred. So why would Peter highlight that they're looking to this when it's an event that has transpired, as we see there in verse 11, the sufferings for Christ and his glories? And I would argue verse 12 indicates to me that there's two different eras here. Notice he says, those that were shown these things and then those who proclaim to you. So Old Testament versus New Testament. So I would argue that Peter is addressing Old Testament characters. We'll come back to that, or prophets, because that's, that's extremely important. So we got the who, and the next question is what? What did they predict? And he says, the grace. <laughs> it's another word for salvation. He says, this is what they proclaim to you, the unmerited favor of God. It's, it's what Peter's been talking about earlier on, right? Look at, look at verse three. Blessed be the God and Father by his great mercy, he gave us a new birth into a living hope. There it is. This is what you long for. This is what you, you now have. And so he says, this is the who, this is the what they proclaimed, but notice the how. And this is where it gets juicy. So pay attention. You know, wake up. This is so good. You don't want to miss this. It's better than a cup of coffee. He says, the prophets who predicted the grace came to you. They searched and they investigated. The two terms could be thrown together, but they are a bit distinct in meaning. The first is seeking out. It's used always of seeking for God or seeking the scriptures. The second term is to inquire. It's used of personnel who are seeking what are the next military moves of the enemy. Uh, in the Bible, it's used of searching the scriptures. So both terms are used primarily of either searching the Lord or searching what God has written. In other words, they didn't just sit around and ponder. 
they exerted active effort to find the truth. And as we proceed, notice who they did this for. Did you catch this? The prophets, they predicted this grace that would come to them? No, to you. I find that amazing. I used to wear contacts, and you know what happens when one drops onto the floor, right? And you're in a public area, you're like, freeze, don't anyone move, right? I gotta find that contact. And let's, let's face it, there were some people who really didn't care. They had to get their cup of coffee, and out they went the door, and you're going, I am sure my contact just took a hitchhike ride to their workplace, right? And, and to the prophets, this doesn't ultimately concern you, does it? Well, yes, it does. They understood the great significance concerning this grace and the implications for subsequent generations. They understood that the revelation was just, it was greater than just their immediate descendants. Knowing the full story, I would argue, is very important. It's why they searched the scriptures, and I would argue it's true for us as New Testament saints. The details of the Lord's future plan, oh, let's face it, when you get to the eschatology, the study of last things, often people will break out in a rash, right? And it's, there's much we don't know, but there is things that we can know, and we are commended to study. Prophecy, the spirit of eschatological agnosticism, I would argue, is unhealthy for the church. We need to be exploring. One-fourth of the Bible is prophecy. It's important. And the Old Testament prophets understood that the better the understanding of the future, it results in greater hope, peace, and joy. And so, these Old Testament prophets, even though ultimately it affects us, not them, they did it with great diligence. And so we see a grace that was predicted, but we also see a Savior that was foretold. Because notice in verse 11, it says, they probed this ongoing idea. And this term also means to search. It, it's also used of examining scripture. In fact, Jesus, when he condemns the religious rulers in John 5, he says, you, you've searched the scriptures, but you don't obey it. So you, you, you try to dive into it. And so you see the word search, investigating carefully, probing. And as I thought through that, there, there are several very important implications here, isn't there? First of all, the Old Testament prophets understood the importance of Scripture. In Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Christ promised that the entire Old Testament, that is the law and the prophets, would be fulfilled and not abolished. In fact, he declared that not even the smallest Hebrew letter, which is the Yod, which looks like an apostrophe or a stroke um, that, or a tittle, it, it's part of a letter. For instance, R has one extra tittle than a P, right? And he says, and all of these things, they're significant. He says, none of this will pass away. Uh, a good friend of mine years ago he used the analogy of uh, some people have fun using the letter F and adds a tittle by making puns. So it changes the meaning, but you add another tittle. He says some people have fun when they make runs and other people have fun when they eat buns. So he just kept adding another tittle. And Jesus said, not a tittle of the Old Testament, not the smallest letter will come. To, they, all of this will be fulfilled. It's not gonna be abolished. It's all significant. And our Old Testament writers understood this. Secondly, 
They understood it's not an invention or a best guess. It's been revealed. I mean, otherwise, why take the effort? John Piper writes, these men's writings do not read like the works of gullible, easily deceived or deceiving men. Their insights into human nature was profound. Their personal commitment is sober and carefully stated. Their teachings are coherent and do not look like the invention of unstable men. The moral and spiritual standard is high and the lives of these men are totally, totally devoted to the truth and to the honor of God. That's what these Old Testament writers understood. They, they saw that it was important. They knew it wasn't an invention. In fact, they saw it as the source of truth and guidance. It was accurate. It was reliable. Jesus does this in the, in the New Testament. I mean, think about some of the events he refers to in the Old Testament as actually occurring. Adam and Eve, he refers to them. He refers to Jonah and the fish. He, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. He refers to Noah's Ark. For, for Jesus, these are historical events. So either Jesus is wrong and they didn't occur or he's correct and they did. And for the, the Old Testament writers, all of this was assumed to be reliable and true. In addition, scripture is necessary. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we, we may do all the words of his law and it's necessary for salvation. It's necessary, and I would also argue they know that it can be known. It's authoritative. In a postmodern world that would argue you can't know anything, that is so foreign to scripture. Acts is very clear. Uh, Paul says, you're to know these, Peter said, you're to know these things with certainty. We have a pretty sadistic God because he is assuming you are going to know because he's gonna hold you eternally responsible. So we are to know these things. It can be known. And, and obviously they think that because they're searching it, they're, they're exploring it. And finally, they would argue that scripture is sufficient. It's in this that we find what God is unfolding for humanity. It's sufficient to witness to the truth of God and his salvation, Luke 16, and all that is necessary to obey him. Paul concludes his final letter that he writes in the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now listen to verse 17, that the man of God or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Wow, right? Our, one of our children, I'll leave it at that, is taking a class. And the teacher said recently that Christianity, the Bible, is all imagination. It was to create this myth that these things are true. That is not what the Old Testament prophets believed. <laughs> they searched long and hard to know these things, assuming that you can know. Oh, they didn't know it all. Even Peter said some of Paul's writings are difficult to understand, but some is. And in this, I can know Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because the Bible told me so. And so the Old Testament prophets, they searched, they probed, they went carefully in. And for us as believers, we see the significance of scripture in the lives of God's people. 
You want to measure a person's spiritual vitality, their walk with the Lord? Then examine the place of Bible in his or her life. How often are they in the Word? How often are they memorizing Scripture? Is it just in passing? Is it look nice on a shelf? One pastor stated that without the Bible, our knowledge of God would be so limited, we would have no rational object of our faith, no doctrine on which to build our hope, and no way of even knowing the meaning of genuine love. No wonder Job stated, I would rather know this than have a morsel of food. It's so significant to me, Job 23. And so, that, and, and I would argue not only is it important for the walk of a believer, that absent from the text is going to be a, a, a walk with God that's impaired, but it's also true for the church. It's how we're nourished, we're strengthened by the bold proclamation of the word. And I, I would argue the church, in many ways, big C, is a bit anemic because this is no longer taking priority in many congregations across the globe. May it not happen here. I'm so grateful for our elders who understand the importance of the word. It's part of the DNA of who we are. And when it is not, may we just close our doors. Right? We said that before, I'll say it again. So significant. Notice what the text says. They probe to what person of time, the spirit of Christ within them. Now this, what person or time, if you have the NIV, it says when and under what circumstances. The New American Standard, the English version, the ASV, ESV, and the net all have the person. The grammar here in the Greek is a little unclear. You could render it either way. And the, those who argue when and what circumstance, they would argue they already knew about the Messiah coming. It's the circumstances and the immediate context seems to suggest that. I'm going to argue it's more the who and the what. The who seems like a natural question to ask. If you're back in the Old Testament era, you want to know who is the Messiah and what are the circumstances surrounding it. The grammatical construction, I would also argue, lends itself more to, to render it as a who, a person. And so, as we see here in the Net Bible, what person or time is what is being prophesied. The Spirit of Christ is the Holy Spirit. It's a unique way to refer to the Holy Spirit, but as we know elsewhere in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is sent from Jesus and the Father. And we also know grammatically construction here that it's the Spirit, I would argue, that is revealing these things to them about Christ. And so he says this, the Holy Spirit was active in the lives of the Old Testament prophets as they searched the prophecies that God gave them. They're looking for two things. Did you notice this? One is the sufferings of Christ. The, the prediction that, that Jesus is going to suffer is found all the way back in Genesis 3, where we're told the seed of the woman would be bruised by the heel of the serpent. And it continues throughout the Old Testament. Psalm 22. We can go through a laundry list of Old Testament texts that look to the suffering Messiah. It's the one thing in the first century the Jews failed to under comprehend. The idea that a, 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 a Messiah should suffer was not something they got their heads wrapped around. Oh, there's elements of it in prophecy, but they missed that. Now, this, the second part they got, and that is dealing with the glories, which we'll get to in a minute. But the sufferings of the Messiah are key in the New Testament. 
And I love, for instance, 1 Peter 2, he quotes from Isaiah 53 to, uh, to indicate this is the one who suffers for us. And there's the subsequent glory. See that as well? With them was indicating the subsequent. And glories here is plural. It's not just the resurrection and ascension of Christ, I would argue, but it's also his second coming and his reign. They all go hand in hand. One of my favorite scenes in all of the Gospels, and it's one that, I don't know, I hope we have a virtual tour in heaven. We probably won't, we won't even worry about that. We'll be in the presence of the Lord. We'll forget all about it, right? But one of the scenes I love in Scripture is when Jesus at the Emmaus Road, and he, he unpacks the Old Testament. Luke 24, some of those who were with us, they're reporting to Jesus, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. They did not see him. And they're confused. And Jesus says to them, listen to these words, oh, foolish ones, all right? It's a little harsh, right? Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. What is it? Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow, what a lesson that would have been, right? Take notes. Uh, it's powerful. Now, I don't know about you, but I love that we've highlighted the sufferings and glory. You kind of wonder, uh, where's Bethlehem? You know, Micah 5, 2, there's some great text. Isaiah 7, virgin birth. Uh, why didn't we, we talk about that in, in verse 11? Because Peter's focus is the gospel. That's what he's talking about. In the past... Remember, he's writing to believers who are suffering. And they've latched on to this. Is this true, Peter? I'm really struggling here. He says, oh, no, no, no. Think about the hope you have in the present. Don't forget what waits on the glory. And let me tell you something about what was built upon this huge foundation in the Old Testament. And the suffering and glories of Christ are essential to the gospel. Acts 26, Paul states in his defense, to this day I have had the help that comes from God. I stand here testifying to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. Listen to it, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. There it is. The sufferings and glory of Christ. It's the gospel in a nutshell. And Peter says to these believers who are struggling, listen, this was given, this was known way in advance, and we are the beneficiaries of what these Old Testament prophets would have loved to have got their hands around. But we have the benefit living on this side of the cross. And so he says in verse 12, these were shown. Literally, it's the term apocalypse. These were revealed. It's used 26 times in the New Testament. It's like, this is God speaking to you. This is what he has revealed. And notice it's highlighted again. They were serving not themselves. The prophetic predictions were not without relevance for the original hearers, writes Wayne Grudem. He says, for they would give comfort and hope to those who look towards faith, but primarily they were given to minister to us, that is, to new covenant believers. Wow. 
That's why Hebrews 11 states these, these Old Testament saints, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having knowledge that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. They look to this. So what are the implications here? They're huge. First of all, we have continuity between the message of the New Testament and its direct relationship to the Old Testament. The theology of the New Testament is fundamentally indebted to and a reflection of major Old Testament themes, images, and languages. And I would argue the evangelistic message of the church was foretold by the Old Testament. And it indicates the relevance here. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, I've not come to destroy the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. This is what it looked to. I had a professor, he says it's an analogy of a, a rosebud that's now in full bloom. Here it is. And all its glory and what we benefit. The, the writers of the, Old, the New Testament understood that importance. I mean, look at Peter. He's absolutely convinced that the Old Testament was clearly anticipating the things he proclaims. In only five short chapters of 1 Peter, he will quote from the Old Testament nearly 20 times. These quotations, they're really only a small part because it's laced with allusions. Some scholars argue there are over 40 Old Testament allusions in the five chapters. In other words, you stab this sucker with a knife, 1 Peter, it is going to bleed Old Testament. It's vital to the storyline. And ultimately, I would argue the continuity stems from the fact that God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New. Why do I stress this? Because... As we know, there are some who want to argue that the New Testament should be unhitched. The church should be unhitched from the worldview value systems of the Old Testament. Far from it. <laughs> we are in full bloom. We are indebted to the Old Testament and all that it gives us. So there's a continuity. There's also authority. Look at verse 12 very carefully. Notice what Peter says. He says, serving not themselves but you... Again, who have been led by the Spirit of Christ, verse 11, in regard to things now announced to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the major player here, right? It moved through the Old Testament prophets. It's now moving through those who are proclaiming the gospel to you. And I would argue that's the apostles in the early church. And what do we see? Authority in the message that is equal. This is very significant. 1 Timothy 5, Paul will link Deuteronomy with Luke, and he will put them on the same playing field. A book of the Pentateuch, first five books with the New Testament writer. Peter will later call Paul's writings Scripture, equating them with the Old Testament. It's very significant. It's on the same level. And what I love too here in the text, it says not only... Are they involved through this, through the work of the Spirit? But even the angels long to catch a peekaboo, a glimpse. <laughs> Literally, it means they stooped down to glance. It's kind of like a, a wedding, right? The bride comes in. Oh, there she is. Everyone wants to, to look. You're not part of the wedding party. Why are you all excited? Right? I always wonder that. You know, hey, you're not staying up with her. That's the idea. The Old Testament prophets, the angels, they long to see these things, but we 
are the beneficiaries, which we'll get to in a minute because it's very significant. The angels have a holy curiosity to watch and delight in the glories of Christ and the salvation that comes to men and women. When Christ was born in Bethlehem, what? They praised God as they witnessed God's great salvation for whom? Humanity. And Luke 15 tells us when a believer comes to, when an individual comes to know Christ, by the way, we just had a, a, a four-year-old in our church who came to know Christ. She told mommy, she goes, I gave Jesus all my bad stuff. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord for our, our Sunday school program, our children's ministry, many thanks to all those who are pouring into those kids. It is not a babysitting hour. It's an opportunity to pray over, to, to read scripture and to train and teach. So kudos, keep it up. And the angels were told in Luke 15, they rejoice. They're not recipients of the redemption that's given. Angels can only gaze, they cannot experience, which indicates how significant it is that we can be called the child of God. Matthew 13, but blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and they did not hear it. Wow. That leaves us then with three points there at the bottom of your notes for application. Our glorious salvation a privilege the Old Testament prophets continually explored should spur us on to faithfulness. And think about those Old Testament prophets. Some of them went through very serious issues. Just read Hebrews 11. Saul and two, tortured for serving the Lord. And I have no doubt at times they wondered, Lord, when is this all going to come to play? To play? And, and, and I hear the question from many from us. <laughs> Lord, when are you coming back? This world just seems to get worse and worse. Uh, is this all there is? In, in the midst of suffering and trials in Second Peter, Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Pink writes, one former pastor of years gone by, everything about God is great, vast, incomparable. He never forgets, never fails, never falters, never forgets or forfeits his word. To every declaration of promise or prophecy, the Lord has exactly adhered. Every engagement of covenant or, th or threatening, he will give, makes good on that's our Lord. <laughs> and the Old Testament prophets show us, yes, God keeps his word. And, and again, we relish in that. We wallow in those fulfillments. And so there should be a call to be faithful. God will continue to keep his word. Secondly, our glorious salvation, a privilege that the Old Testament saints long to see and the angels marveled over should cause us to rejoice. Exodus 15, the Lord is my strength, my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. Think about the benefits we have as New Testament saints. We have much to rejoice over living on this side of the cross. There, there's no more sacrifices. No more, right? No pilgrimages to Jerusalem. No curtains or priests. 
We have the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit, whereas in the Old Testament, it could come and go. Just ask David in Psalm 51. Uh, we are identified as children of God, and we are seen as righteous because of what Christ's righteousness has been reckoned to our account, 2 Corinthians 5. If you still struggle seeing the benefits of what Christ has accomplished, then read the book of Hebrews. 13 times that letter says, better, 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 because what Christ has accomplished. And so we walk in faithfulness, we rejoice. And the third aspect there in your notes is that our glorious salvation should encourage us to live a life of gratitude. We have a clock hanging on our wall that we bought years ago, and it has the verse 1 Thessalonians 5.18 engraved in it, which is, give thanks in all circumstances. <laughs> we bought that clock just before I was terminated. So I got some white out. No, I'm joking. <laughs> it's a reminder. No, God goes before us. In all things, give thanks. Look at where we stand in the light of God's cosmic plan. Our glorious salvation is a privilege marked by the newness and excellence of the church age. Thomas Watson wrote, great was the work of creation, but greater the work of redemption. It costs more to redeem the, us than to make us. In one, there was but the speaking of a word. In the other, the shedding of blood. <laughs> That's our salvation found in Christ. This is what he's accomplished for us. And so, we walk in faithfulness, we rejoice, and we give thanks. This morning, we come to commemorate what the Old Testament prophets long to see and the angels stoop down to marvel over, and that is salvation made possible through the death of Jesus Christ. If you've not received a communion cup and bread, we have those. They're available as our ushers administer those. God had devised the plan prior to the creation of the world and foretold the plan all the way back in texts such as Genesis 3. Why? Because as the Old Testament prophets noted time and time again, no matter how religious we are, no matter the resources we've been given, and we saw this in the book of Nehemiah, we still fall short to the standards established by a holy God. Right? <laughs> There's nothing we can do to be seen as righteous or holy. Not on our own accord. When Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds the religious rulers, you're toast. Now, one of the, the disciples short-circuited. How can that be? I mean, if we, they're, they're the holy, they're the now group, the frozen chosen. We can't be like them. What Jesus is referring to, the righteousness comes through Christ. The only means we could be righteous is if the perfect man, who was also God, came to earth and paid the price for our unholy acts, our decisions, and thoughts. He not only paid our debt, Jesus rose from the dead and is willing to forgive our sins. No wonder the prophet searched with great earnest and the angels longed to catch a glimpse of something that is so wonderful. You know, the gift is available to you today. It's free. <laughs> There's no collection for it. There's nothing you've got to sign. There's no way you can earn it or buy it. 
the scriptures say, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Accept the gift today. Believe that Jesus is the only means for your salvation and confess that you are a sinner and you need his sacrifice, his righteousness. The communion is designed for those who've already called upon the name of the Lord. We do not eat the bread and drink this cup for salvation, right? It's because we remember the salvation the Lord has given to us. Such a gift, standing on this side of God's plan, on this side of the cross, certainly calls for faithfulness, rejoicing, and gratitude. So this morning, those of you who know Christ as your Savior, perhaps your life recently has not reflected faithfulness. Your walk with the Lord has waned. You've pushed the envelope, you know you have. Whether it's watching things on the computer, not guarding the tongue, the list goes on. Perhaps it's in the realm of rejoicing. You've allowed bitterness and anger to take hold and it, it's hindered your relationship with the Lord or perhaps it has really severed some walks with God's people. Or perhaps it's gratitude. I mean, recently you've been far from grateful. <laughs> you've taken what the Lord has done for granted. And so this morning, before we come to this, let's spend some time with the Lord confessing our sin and making sure our hearts are right with him. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, this is the time to bend your knee. The joy that comes, the privileges, and that's what Peter is talking about, the joy of our salvation, the joy that comes, the opportunity, the hope that we have, and the glorious past of which we are established upon. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. come to you this morning and uh, we're, a, <laughs> we're a sinful lot. We're so grateful for the grace that you've extended, the forgiveness. And Lord, it's easy to harbor ill will, to lick our wounds, to even question your goodness. Father, forgive us. We are so grateful for our salvation, one in which the Old Testament saints longed to see as they searched and investigated and probed and the angels marvel at and even rejoice over. And Father, it's easy to take all that for granted, to recognize that we stand on the head and shoulders of those who've gone before us 
Father, we're grateful. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you that we stand on this side of the cross and that your son's righteousness has been reckoned to our account and the dwelling of the spirit which comforts and guides and leads us. And Father, thank you for your amazing blessings that you've bestowed, as Peter said, your mercies that have given us a new birth and to a hope that we have for all eternity. Fathers, we come to this communion table. We thank you again for the sacrifice your son made on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul gave some words to the church at Corinth in remembering this event. He said, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he, he took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. A body which the prophet said will be so marred, you won't even recognize the human form. Isaiah 52. He said, it's this body, knowing full well what's about to transpire. And he said, every time you eat it, do this in remembrance of me. <laughs> Same way you took the cup after supper. Imagine the Old Testament texts that had been delivered, <laughs> that kept coming up through his mind, such as the blood would flow like a lamb on a slaughtering block. Knowing all that, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant, my blood. Do this often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that was made on the cross. A plan that you had orchestrated again before the foundation of the world. One that the Old Testament prophets just couldn't get their heads around. It's no wonder <laughs> Paul writes in Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord? You could have just zapped us out, started all over. You, you, you could have perhaps found another way, but no, no, no. You gave your son. And you loved us so much that whoever calls upon him will be saved. So thank you for our glorious salvation. And with the angels, we rejoice and we say, worthy indeed is your name. In Jesus' name.